The hunt for evidence of a chemical weapons attack in Syria. Are the inspectors too late? Does Trump want a Nobel Peace Prize? So who are the real players behind the scenes in Korea? And the US Air Force joins celebrations for RAF 100 stateside. Well, my family are all very British. <laughs> so we came up to see the planes. Syria, and there is still an argument that there may never have been a chemical attack on the people of Douma. All the evidence and statements from world leaders other than Putin and Assad says there was such an attack. Dr Patricia Lewis is the Research Director for International Security at Chatham House and previously Director of the UN Department that looked at chemical weapons proliferation. Good to speak to you, Dr Lewis. Have you ever had any doubts that A, this was a chemical attack and B, it was instigated by the official Syrian armed forces? Well, of course, until we get the evidence from the OPCW inspectors that is um, you know, clear, then it will be... Um, or there'll always be some element of uncertainty as to what chemicals were used and by whom. Um, however, there's been a whole pattern of behaviour here since 2013, when we had the very first big attack. Um, then there was the clean-up of all the chemical weapons, the shipping out and the destruction of them. But since then, we've seen repeated chlorine attack by both non-state armed groups and by the Assad regime, and we've seen sarin attacks by the Assad regime. So if it's sarin, it's the governmental forces that have used it. Yes, you mentioned the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. They've arrived in Douma this week. What is the procedure exactly for finding the source of an attack like this? Well, they'll be doing a number of uh, different types of samples. They'll be taking samples from the ground, from water, from the walls, from clothing, from blood, from urine... Uh, from skin samples, etc. They'll be looking for all sorts of things. People will presumably have bagged their clothes. I'm sure that doctors will have been taking blood and urine samples um, from the beginning. So uh, a lot of that evidence will be available to the inspectors. We've heard all the allegations about attempts to, to clear up the evidence. Is it possible to get rid of it all if someone were wanting to do that? If it's chlorine, it's a lot easier to do that. Uh, chlorine is a, comp is a, a an element that uh, you know with, that will dissolve, um, and uh, it can be uh, swept out um, relatively quickly. Sarin, it's much harder. It's a nerve agent. It's not soluble in water, as we've seen with the Novichoks, which is a similar type of compound. Um, that it's much harder to get rid of and it persists in the environment for a lot longer. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is also here. Christopher, what should happen before a Prime Minister can make a definitive statement on what has been going on? Tell us a bit more about SIGINT and HUMINT. What are they exactly? Yeah, um, it, it is so difficult to, to, to get away from this idea that until you've actually got a medical and uh, on-the-site uh, definition of what actually was the conquest and the, and and the result of all this, for the prime minister to be absolutely sure, but she's got to be she's got to be sure enough to get up and follow in an international argument. Now there are two things: one is called humint, and one is called sigint. Humint is stuff that should be monitored and sent back to, let us say, MI6, uh, uh, military intelligence. And this is a human, human intelligence. intelligence, and it's it's people that you have that you know them, that you rely upon them, uh, that are probably your own people rather than just agents, their officers, who are there or close by, and therefore they can give you an 
what they used to call an eyeball report and of t- what's happening. Typically, how many people might we be talking about we in might Syria? Only, we might only talk about one, or you might talk about a number of people, but also people who know other people and can rely on them for, for what they've seen. The other one, which is far more interesting, is SIGINT, Signals Intelligence. And it's, it's the ability to monitor the signals of, let's say, the Syrian army of commanders of small units, even low downs, any radio communications. Now, before you go into an action, you'll, you'll probably close down your communication so you won't hear much signals intelligence. But you've heard things, and you've heard things you've recognized from what sort of units they're coming from, uh, even down to the uh, originals, uh, including the vehicles that they're being used, whether they're aircraft, whether they're ships, or whether, whether, whether they're sort of lorries or whatever. And you put this together, and you can piece together the site of the formation without actually seeing it. And so, therefore, if you get the regimental numbers, battalion numbers, the platoon numbers, you can identify what sort of people are are in the operation. That way, you may get three things. You may get what is about to happen. You might get what is happening and then what did happen. And that's the sort of information that's got to be included, not for the Prime Minister to sort out herself, it's the information that's got to be included and presented to her so that she knows that it's got a foundation because 2003, when these sort of things weren't done properly, is is, is not that and long would, away. And would the Prime Minister have had both forms of intelligence in order to have ordered those airstrikes as she did last weekend? What she would have had was an assessment probably based on some human, some human intelligence, some signals intelligence, but not separately. It would be part of the paper, the draft that she would get to say, this is what we believe happened. Mm. Patricia Lewis, how many organisations are briefing the Prime Minister? Um, Well, it would be much more joined up than it ever used to be. And so she'd be getting information from all of the different departments that may have people on the ground. Um, But also, um, adding, adding into what Christopher said, I think we may also be getting satellite imagery imagery from other stations uh, in terms of, for example, helicopter maneuvers. We know there are helicopters in the area and we know as well that um, the Assad forces have been practicing uh, this type of warfare where they sort of corral people through conventional bombing into an area and then release chemical weapons Mm. on them. Um, And this has been a very effective way of uh, ensuring surrender. I remember at this time last week, uh, Patricia Lewis, we were talking about um, the government's response and what might be at stake was the use of chemical weapons in warfare. Um, But how does that compare with what could be the next stage, a biological attack? For example, I remember people talking about the prospect of of Russians perhaps being taken out of prison who have a a resistant form of tuberculosis and sent all around the world to spread the disease. Yes, although, although, I mean, that would be fairly slow moving. A much faster one would be hemorrhagic fever, something uh, like Ebola of that ilk or, or a sort of a, a new strain of flu. Um, I think the most important thing there is a, a very good health system, um, vaccinations and, and readiness and preparedness. And how, how serious a threat do you, do you judge it to be? If it were ever to happen, it's extremely serious. It's equivalent, I would say, to a nuclear war in terms of the numbers that could be killed. But the most important point is, unlike with nuclear weapons, there are measures that can be put in place to both prevent and to reduce the, the damage through resilience. You talk about how serious it would be if it were ever to happen. How hard is the government working on this at the moment? Oh, I mean, very. I mean, they always have. I'd say that the scientists at Portendown have spent 
um, enorm large numbers of years um, looking at all of the different threats, the range of threats. Um, and um, our troops certainly have um, been prepared in, in many circumstances for all measure of types of both chem and bio to be thrown at them. Patricia, I've, I've always had the idea that people like you have been working on this for <laughs> a couple of decades. Uh, I'm never quite sure that people at the defence ministries around the world in the Western Alliance are working on it with the same intensity. Um, I think that has changed in the last few years, Christopher, actually. I think that there has been a new awakening to, certainly since 2013, since the Assad um, government used chemical weapons in a way that they hadn't been used since, really, since the Iran-Iraq war. I think um, when we, with the Novichoks, I think it's very interesting how they were able to identify it. I, I know that originally they didn't ex uh, suspect that, but then very quickly they worked out what it was and were able to respond. It's extraordinary as well that um, the Skripals have managed to recover, mm. which I think most people were not expecting. So that says, I think, a lot about the sort of work that's gone on in terms of, of resilience and response. All right, Dr. Patricia Lewis, thank you for your time today. We'll leave it there for now. Now, Donald Trump says he will walk out of planned talks with the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, if he feels they're not progressing well. Here he's speaking yesterday. If I think that it's a meeting that is not going to be fruitful, we're not going to go. If the meeting when I'm there is not fruitful, I will respectfully leave the meeting. Well, let's talk to Andrea Berger, Senior Research Associate at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Good to speak to you today, Andrea. Uh, there is an uncompromising president, but this is far away from the bad mouthy a few months back when he was calling Kim Jong-un a rocket man. You're right. It really has been quite the, the U-turn in the situation, at least as far as sort of the declaratory policy goes and the atmospherics. Um, we're now in in full engagement drive, um, spearheaded, of course, by, by the South Koreans um, and, and followed by a, a, a band of others, a growing band of others, including the U.S., um, the Chinese and, and the Japanese. And when we see President Trump getting aboard Air Force One, we have to assume from what he said that an agreement on getting rid of North Korea's nuclear warheads is possible. I think it's possible, but it's going to be extraordinarily difficult. Um, and um, I don't expect at all that that sort of agreement is going to be what occurs in the next few months. Indeed, uh, I think the risk is really that um, some of the the North Korea hawks in the U.S. administration go into this thinking, okay, we'll put a proposal forward for you know North Korea to get rid of everything, um, and if that doesn't come to pass, uh, then you know we'll go back to to what we've always said was the case, which is the need for a maximum pressure campaign. Really, it's a, a, an approach that potentially puts the, the best at, at being the enemy of the good or, or is a, a kind of go big and go home. Christopher Lee, um, I said at the beginning of this programme that uh, President Trump may well be aiming for a Nobel Peace Prize, but how has this meeting really been brought about? I'll tell you, but can I just say, backing up uh, what we just heard from Andrea, 1986... Reagan, President Reagan meets President Gorbachev and uh, the officials in the White House are really worried about this because President Reagan, off his head they thought, can, can give away everything. And so there's a man called Richard Pearl who was still around. <clears throat> he put up a scheme that uh, President Reagan would propose to 
President Gorbachev. And President Gorbachev could never accept it. And then President Reagan go home and said, well, I tried. But he did that in order to break up the Reykjavik talks in mm -hmm. 1986. Now, that's the sort of thing that Andrea is talking about now. It could be the Americans go there and say, oh, well, we can't do this. Mm. Now, listen, quick, very quickly. What of this meeting, then? How, how, did, it, how did it come um, about, exactly? And we, we talk about Trump, Kim Jong-un as the, you know, the, the two, two main guys. Also, um, President Moon, we have to think about him, of, of, South of, Korea. of South Korea. He is the man that has been able to bring this whole thing together. And he's done it through two other pe people. Uh, Suhoon, who is the uh, head of intelligence in South Korea, who used to run uh, an intelligence service which was right in North Korea at one time called KDA, which is an energy organization. And then uh, Ching uh, Yeo. And Ching is the security minister of South Korea. He knew know, or knows uh, McMaster, who is the, uh, who is the uh, uh, security man advising, uh, uh, advising the president. These are the people that have been going backwards and forwards. You've got the head of the uh, American intelligence agency, the CIA, going to, going to North Korea. You've got the North Korean equivalent uh, talking to the guy in the South Korea, and these are the fixers. And these are the people that the real novel is made from, the, the backroom voice who are just doing mm. the tramp and, uh, and going around. And eventually, they all come up with the great idea, don't they? And the Americans have got one better idea. And they say, well, you can all, the three of us, you can all get a Nobel Peace Prize out mm. of this. And it's an incentive. <laughs> Andrea Berger, you, you were expressing some doubt whether or not uh, the denuclearization would come anytime soon. What do you think will come of this meeting? I think it, we've got to distinguish with, between what probably comes from the, the meeting between North and South and what might come from a meeting between the U.S. and North Korea. Um, North and South are going to, to meet in the next few weeks, indeed next week. And, and I think there the, the South Korean president has said that they have an ambitious agenda, but what they'll, what they'll do is really lay out a, a blueprint for a future set of discussions that are going to continue further, further into the future. Um, and and the U.S. hasn't kind of sketched out that same approach. They're, they're very much saying that they're not going to make concessions up front. Um, you know, they're happy for the South Koreans to go and do their thing. But, but they want to see action by the North Koreans mm. quickly with denuclearization front-loaded. And that's, those are two quite different and plans. Andrea Berger, do you believe that the North Korean leader is serious about dismantling the nuclear weapons? I think it is extremely unlikely that the North Koreans are serious about the full denuclearization of North Korea. Um, you, you have to remember that uh, nuclear weapons are not only driven by security concerns in North Korea, they're also driven by uh, domestic politics, by leadership politics. The nuclear program has become really, really embedded within uh, the national consciousness and the legitimacy of the Kim family. Uh, in particular. So unraveling this problem is, is, you know, really one of the hardest problems, I think. Is there, there a compromise the to be done, do you space. think? Um, there, there may be. And, and this is where I hope very much that I'm wrong. But I think we can make more limited progress, um, you know, moratoria on certain types of nuclear missile testing, um, potentially even on some types of fissile material production. I think those small steps are there. And this is why I'm, I'm uh, you know, concerned about making the best the enemy of the good because I do think we need those good steps too right now. 
All right, Andrea Berger, the Senior Research Associate at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey. Thank you for that. Sit-rep. With Kate Still to come, why military veterans are struggling with our benefits system and Commonwealth leaders gather at Buckingham Palace. Are they the generals that the UN needs? EFBS Sit-rep. A week of events to mark RAF 100 in the United States is coming to a close. Hundreds of personnel have been involved in the programme in Washington, D.C. And as Ali Gibson found out, air power is still a fundamental part of the special relationship. An original Lancaster bomber flew in specially to Washington for the start of RAF 100 USA. It's one of two left in the world that are airworthy. Joining it at the Air and Space Museum in Washington were thousands of American visitors. Here to check out aircraft like the B-25D Mitchell Grumpy, Chipmunks and a P-8 Poseidon. I've never seen an Airvo Lancaster in the United States. I've only seen them in video games. Well, my family are all very British. (laughs) So we came up to see the planes. The Royal Air Force Band is nearly as old as the RAF itself, which became the world's first independent air force in 1918. Back then, Anglo-American cooperation in flight was just beginning. Now, the Royal Air Force and the US Air Force work on huge joint programs like the F-35. And the special relationship is also seen by many to influence Theresa May, when she decided this week to join American and French airstrikes in Syria. RAF tornadoes fired eight Storm Shadow missiles against a suspected storage facility for chemical weapons. General David Goldfine is the Chief of Staff for the US Air Force, and Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier is the British Chief of the Air Staff. We took a stand against evil and did the right thing, and did it with precision, and did it with excellence, and did it with professionalism, and it's a standard for the world. I was absolutely confident based on the decades of experience that we have working together, that it would go as well as it did. But it remains hugely important to recognise just the skill and the professionalism of our air crew and ground crews who made all of that happen. The tornado, of course, is soon to retire. The US and UK are focusing on bringing the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter into service. The programme is a two-way street. Group Captain Willie Hackett is the UK's national deputy on the programme in Washington. We brought people and knowledge into this programme from the Harrier programme and other areas, and that's why we're the only level one partner. They really value our experience. March on standard, number 617 squadron. RAF personnel have spent months training with the Marine Corps in South Carolina to get to grips with the F-35B. Now they've been formally stood up as 617 Squadron, the Dambusters. A ceremony in Washington's Air and Space Museum marks their reformation. Wing Commander John Butcher is their officer commanding. This aircraft is very different. It does a lot more for you. A lot of the sensors uh, are able to pick up uh, entities and, and contacts out in the battle space. And it makes actually fighting the aircraft that much easier. The head of the US Air Force told journalists this week that while the US brings mass, the UK brings speed to air operations. 
General Goldfein sees Britain as vital to the US's air supremacy. And the two chiefs also agree. The Air Force personnel need to now turn their attention to the threats of cyber and space. That was Ali Gibson reporting from Washington. Christopher, what do you think of that kind of uh, celebration over there? I, I, I think it's all right. You know, it's great. You it's can't all right. Have it, well, it's, you know, <laughs> so it's, how many up 10 there? Like nine up 10 from Christopher Lee? <laughs> well, I, mean, I, wouldn't go that, I wouldn't go that far over the top. Um, oh but i tell you one thing I do, 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 do think about. I, well, he may, because, because I would have words with him. i tell you the, the thing I do notice. In the great sort of picturesque celebration, it's been the aeroplanes, because the aeroplanes are the most important thing. The guys are really great, but it's the aeroplanes, isn't it? The ones that we think about, Spitfires, um, the Shackletons, the Lancasters, the Carriers, and now today the Typhoons. You don't see many people with spanners. Hmm. You see people... Needed as they are. Well, the purpose of the Royal Air Force is to keep planes in the air, and the people that do that better than anybody else are people with spanners. I think ground crews, the techies, ought to have a bigger space. And you look at advertising now, what do they need? They need techies. Mm. They do not need so many pilots. Now, armed forces veterans with service-related physical or mental health injuries should not have benefit sanctions imposed by the Department of Work and Pensions, according to a new report. The research carried out by academics and the University of Salford and the University of York for the Forces in Mind Trust has investigated the experiences of former servicemen and women using the benefits system. Well, let's talk to Dr. Lisa Scullion at the University of Salford. Dr. Scullion, good to speak to you today. What is the experience of veterans and the benefits system? Good afternoon. Um, the benefits system in the UK is massively complex and we have a whole system of transition at the moment with the move to universal credit that people will be aware of. So it's complex for everyone, but we found that for veterans specifically who may never have come across that type of system before, it can be particularly problematic. They don't know what they're entitled to in the first place. They don't know how to access things. One person described it as trying to find a needle in a stack of needles, trying to work out what they were entitled to and which benefit they should apply for. But also when they're within that system, it's quite difficult for some people to manage their ongoing claim. We have conditionality, what we call conditionality, inherent within our benefit system now, where conditions are attached to receiving benefits. For example, people might have to do 35 hours job search per week and demonstrate that online, or they might be subject to a sanction. So there is often difficulties in managing that for some veterans. We also... Sorry. So, I was just wondering how many veterans we're talking about who have problems with the benefits system. Well, I mean, we, we can't say from this research. We, we have done a qualitative study, so we've interviewed 68 people in depth, but we've done this in different geographical areas around England, and we've also spoke to a number of agencies that are supporting veterans. So we know this, is just, this isn't just unique to one area that we've been to. We've been finding these experiences all over the country where we've been doing interviews. And within our sample, people were, were, were all saying similar things across the sample. And we think it's probably the tip of the iceberg, the people that we've spoken to, in terms of the difficulty people face. So do you think that veterans deserve special help? And if so, what kind of help? I think, I mean, if you look at the Armed Forces Covenant, it's not necessarily about preferential treatment. It's about making sure that people aren't disadvantaged. 
And our research is showing that to a certain extent, people are disadvantaged in a way. If they're not used to this system, and if the information hasn't been provided to them, then they are at a disadvantage. But also what we've found is a, a particularly worrying issue is around understandings of mental health issues that relate to time in service. A large proportion of the people we spoke to had got mental health issues from service and that appeared to be quite poorly understood by the frontline staff in the job centre and also by some of the staff that were doing the assessments for benefits. So when people have to go through a work capability assessment in order to receive benefits, some of those assessors didn't really understand how PTSD, for example, might impact on someone being able to sustain a job. Mm. So people were sometimes wrongly assessed as being fit for work. And it was only when um, an armed forces charity or a GP intervened that that decision might be overturned. But it, there's a kind of lack of understanding and people aren't necessarily asking for preferential treatment, but they want their their kind of service medical and the relevant medical information to be taken into consideration when they're claiming benefits. So what does your report recommend exactly? So what we're recommending is that there's a few different things really. We, we think that the DWP needs to look at the training that's provided to, to frontline staff, but also ensuring that those people that are carrying out assessments are suitably qualified to assess the needs of people who've served in the armed forces, particularly in relation to mental health. There's also a need to look at the, the kind of variation in the quality of support across different job centres. There was evidence of good practice in some job centres where there is somebody who's a designated lead who supports veterans, but that doesn't happen in, in every job centre. And we think that that should happen in every job centre. So a person can go to any job centre in, in this country and know that if they're a veteran, there'll be somebody who will understand that. We also um, want to ensure that the assessment process is reviewed to make sure that, that, that medical service medical information is being consistently applied where it should. And we suggested that they review the Armed Forces Champions Network as well because we found good practice in some areas, mm. but in other areas, some of the stakeholders that we, that we spoke to um, had never come across their Armed Forces Champion or had had difficulty finding out who that person was. So these are the kind of things that we were recommending. Well, Dr Scullion, um, our defence analyst Christopher Lee has been listening to our conversation. Christopher. Um, Dr Scullion, is, this is really valuable, isn't it? I mean, you only see 60, 68 people, but, you know, start to scale it up. I mean, first and foremost, I was wondering, what happens now? I mean, you, you carry on this or not? Well, this, this is actually an interim findings that we've launched. But will you go um, on, for, you know, you're going to take another research group? Uh, we're actually going to, it's a longitudinal study, so the 68 people that we've interviewed, we're going to interview them again. So there's a 12-month period and we're going to interview them again because when we're talking about transitions, we don't just want to interview somebody once mm. and take a snapshot. It's more useful to, to go back to the same person again and talk to them about what's happened in that 12-month period to see whether or not the benefit system has supported them, if they've moved into work or not, what, what has happened to them in that intervening period, and find out if they have moved into work, who was it that actually supported that? Was it the job centre or was it external agencies that supported that? Yeah, transition? you see, the most important thing is the link-up between the services. 
and the job centres or whatever, the services themselves haven't got the machinery mm. almost to carry people into the next stage, which is, of course, civilian in, life. In which case, Dr Skelling, we'll come and, if you will, we'd like to talk to you again in 12 months when you've got your, your other results. It'll be good to have a follow-up on this. Will you join us? Absolutely. I'd, 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 it'd be a pleasure. Good to speak to you today. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Now, the Queen has formally opened the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in London. She welcomed the leaders of 53 nations, covering a fifth of the world and a third of the global population. Um, we've seen some of the pomp and ceremony already, haven't we, Christopher? Do they talk much or about defence and security? They talk about it in a different way. I mean, there is, there is the, there's the tie to the United Kingdom, 53 countries, very definite ties to the United Kingdom. I mean, a lot of them, or some of them, actually left the, the Commonwealth and went back. I've been, last couple of days, I've been around uh, uh, that bit of Pall Mall where they all gather and speak in, in, in the... In, in in the assessment meetings, as they call them, uh, in Clarence House, Lancaster House, places like that. I was asking the simple thing. In 53 countries, some of them have small military organisations. All of them take part in the United Nations debates, either as members of the, temporary members of the Security Council or in the subcommittees, on the supply of uh, peacekeepers. And they're not keen on peacekeeping because it's a distinction between do you make the peace or do you make the peace or do you keep it. Most of them say, give us the job, give us an identity, give us it within the Commonwealth. And perhaps five years, six years, seven years, you could put it together. You could have exactly what the United Nations needs. Mm. Hasn't got, but would come under the control of the United Nations and the Commonwealth great future and that is all we have time for for now do check out our video on the forces news facebook page and send us your comments or you can tweet us at bfbs sitrep from me kate Chabot. thanks for listening we'll be back same time next week bye bye The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.